trigger warning for you folks for this episode as it contains topics related to trauma and suicide. If you are struggling in any way in Canada and the USA, you can call 988 for help. Thanks so much and enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome to another episode of the Bear Speak Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Natalie Williams. Welcome, Dr. Natalie. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I am producing this podcast on the territories of the Comox, Klehus, Homoko, and Klaaman First Nations, who were one borderless nation before uh, part of the Coast Salish people before we white settlers came in and separated them into reserves. Uh, yeah, just grateful to be able to produce on their territory. So, uh, Natalie, tell us a bit about yourself. Yeah, so today uh, I'm on campus at I work full time at Cal State LA. Um, I've been here for about a year. Mm. I'm helping coordinate the rehabilitation services program. So it's an undergrad program. Most of the students end up working at the VA or Department of Rehab mm. um, and uh, undergrad or some of them go on for graduate uh, degrees in counseling. Um and in other fields. I also work part-time at two other institutions at National University mm-hmm. and at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and I teach in their ABA programs. Um, yeah. Right on, right on. And uh, I would like to hear a bit about kind of your training, because you've got a unique sort of educational histories how'd you get into the helping field altogether where'd that start (laughs) yeah well I guess it was rooted in my childhood experiences growing up um I lived in a household where there was a lot going on if folks are familiar with the adverse childhood experiences survey it's a set of 10 questions you know asking about what happened to you before you were 18 like negative experiences in childhood my score is six out of ten and then I recently found out my mom's score is eight out of 10. So wow. that kind of gives a lot of insight and explains some things about how I grew up in my background. Yeah. Um, so I remember watching this movie, House of Cards, and um, there was a kid who went and saw a child psychologist. And one thing that they were doing throughout the movie was building this House of Cards. I don't remember the main premise of the movie, but mm-hmm. I remember that getting me curious about um, folks who support children in that way. And um, yeah, and so I just got real interested in in being able to help children. Like I was drawn to that kind of work. So my bachelor's degree was in psychology. Um, I used to tell everybody I was going to be a child psychologist, but I didn't know what that took or what that meant. Yeah, I just know go to school for psychology. Um, after that, I ended up getting a master's degree in rehabilitation counseling. Um, Because after Hmm. undergrad, I didn't really know what I was going to do. Somebody put an application on my desk. It was actually one of the state senators that I met working at this nonprofit back Hmm. in Oklahoma. She put an application. She said they have a scholarship program. I applied. I got in. Um, It was fully funded through, um, yeah, through government support. So if anybody, there's a RSA scholarship, Rehabilitation Services Administration. Hmm. So some schools have funding to recruit more 
folks from diverse backgrounds okay. to work in different fields. So yeah, I was an RSA scholar. And so my schooling was paid for through that program. Um, also then when I was in that program at Langston University in Oklahoma City, which is an HBCU, one of the professors told me, hey, um, I have a connection at Ohio University. I think you should consider. And so I met someone at a conference who was the graduate research assistant for Dr. Renee Middleton, who was mm. the dean of the College of Education at that time. And so I met them and I ended up being the research assistant for the dean at Ohio University when I was studying counselor education and supervision. And so, yeah, I was there for three years. Um, I got introduced to ABA during like sometime between undergrad and my doc program. So mm -hmm. I was working in different ABA clinics off and on yeah. throughout my master's program. And then after my doctoral program was completed, I ended up returning to work in ABA for a company that I had worked with before. And then I ended up finishing my BCBA course sequence. And um, yeah, just kind of moved around, worked at a lot of different places, did some different things in and out of ABA. And now I don't practice anymore. I just teach and I do research and I volunteer mm. and stuff like that. That's awesome. And I don't necessarily want to make this conversation entirely about ABA. I mean, I know there's a lot of behavior analysts that are listening, uh, but I also know folks know that I'm trying to expand a bit beyond ABA too in the conversation, I think both for them and for me and for everybody else. Um, but I'm curious, how did ABA get intermixed in all that? Because none of that sort of checks with the normal ABA story. Yeah, uh, the first job that I had in ABA was in, I think, 2008, which it sounds weird to say, but, you know, that's when it was. It was mm. 2008, mm. and I responded to an ad in the newspaper. Somebody was had posted a position for ABA tutor for mm. autistic children. No, for then they were saying for children with autism. Mm. And um I didn't really know what autism was. I knew I liked helping children, but I thought it was going to be helping, you know, kiddos with their homework. Tutor, and yeah. yeah, I had no idea. But then when I came in the clinic and I saw like toys all over the floor and somebody presenting flashcards and doing all this stuff and there was just a lot going on. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm curious. Um, I've never seen anything like this before, but. Yeah, that's how it initially started. And back then it was real old school, real old school ABA. Yeah. And so why were you looking for work in that area? Like you were because you were doing like a master's in rehab counseling. That doesn't seem like a direction one would go. No, I didn't really want to um, work at a state agency. Mm. I didn't. I'm a bit more like hands on. So I was yeah. never really interested in uh, working at a government agency. The master's in rehab, I was interested in that because of the LPC track. So they had um, mm. the opportunity for you to become licensed as a professional counselor. Mm. And so that was what attracted me to that program initially for the mental health stuff. Because remember, I wanted to be child psychologist, but I yeah. didn't know anything know what that about was, yeah. Yeah, what it took to actually do that. 
But I was like, yeah, counseling sounds like something I might be willing to do. And so I was looking for, it was really hard for me to find any job after I finished my undergrad, the bachelor's in psychology. I was like, whoa, there was nothing that I really was qualified to do. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I wanted to get more experience kind of in the field. I did get a job working at a nonprofit uh, organization that was really, that was a really impactful experience. But the ABA tutor position was, I think, was the closest kind of related, you know, position that was open in my area that uh, was as closely related as possible to anything that I was more interested in doing. And at that time, I did have a I I was pretty set on working with children. Mm -hmm. And so what what is a what is the the master what was the master's program like what is rehabilitation counseling what does that even mean Yeah so traditionally it was called vocational rehabilitation and yeah. so way back way way back like yeah. in the early 1900s um the United States government has been pretty adamant and consistent about funding programs to help people get retrained and reskilled after acquiring um, certain types of disabilities. Mm. And initially it started with soldiers returning from war. And so the government was like, okay, how can we retrain folks, re-educate folks and, and get them into different positions? Mm. And so the thought behind uh, rehabilitation counseling, as it's called now, is that if we think about the level of support that some folks need, um, it would be better to get people trained to have them be a taxpaying, you know, contributing member to society mm-hmm. as opposed to being a person who's on the receiving end. And so thinking about it from a fiduciary perspective, uh, it's been something that's been sustained, you know, and then um, it's just really grown and expanded from there. And so now the emphasis is not always on getting people back to work, mm-hmm. but there's a emphasis on independent living. And then there's a movement, at least in California, there's movement away from the medical model. And some folks are able to get assistance and support post-COVID um, without even having a diagnosis, especially for things like depression and anxiety. They're able to get that support and, and get access to resources without initially having a, a diagnosis. But people who are on like Social Security, like recipients of Social Security benefits, SSR, SSDI, or, or different government um, types of funding. There are certain types of uh, programs where you're automatically eligible. So there's incentives to transition people off of those benefits and getting them back mm. to work. So that's still like the like underlying goal is to have people contribute, you know, and pay taxes, but there's an understanding that some folks are are not able to participate in the workforce. So, you know, what types of supports can be provided there as well. Mm. That's interesting. The uh, It's interesting that people who are, you know, I mean, I think it's great to help folks get jobs and get, get rehabbed and get back to work and if they got a disability for sure or provide support. I think that's all that's good stuff. But it's interesting to me that if you're uh, sort of a, you know, and maybe I'm stretching this a bit, but you're a neurotypical individual who then suffers some kind of trauma. 
there's services available that will help you, you know, become quote unquote kind of contributing members of society, which is a phrase that's been thrown yeah, around in some circles lately <laughs> that uh, we won't get into that one too much, but, um, um, but, but when it comes to sort of, you know, folks who are neurodiverse, particularly autistic folks, I don't hear a lot about sort of goals around, um, or even intellectual disabilities or that sort of thing. I don't hear a lot about goals around getting folks ready for employment um, and, and become being able to, you know, contribute financially that way versus being on support. Instead, I hear a lot about how we're going to have to fund supports for these folks sort of for the rest of their lives. Um, not really a question there, but I guess, do you see how... how I'm curious about how sort of rehab counseling and and you have your SCRC now, which I guess is that's just different than the LPC. There's a lot of acronyms in town. Um, yeah, CRC is Certified Rehabilitation Counselor, and with that one, it's a it's a credential, so hmm. similar to like the BCBA exam. It's yeah. not a license to practice. It's a na national credential. Uh, I see. I see. So. It's not a it's so it's not a license to practice. So, what's the value in it? Is it like having a BCBA without the LBA sort of thing? Yeah, kind of similar to that. Some jobs require it because because it shows that a person has you know foundational level of skills and understanding mm. um, of those rehabilitation principles. There's the yeah. CRC code of ethics. You know, very yeah. similar. Mm -hmm. Nice and. Uh, do you, um, does the rehab, do you, do you see sort of that, some of that rehab knowledge being useful in sort of the autism space? Yeah, for sure. Um, I teach this class called Adults with Disabilities in U.S. Society, hmm. and it's an elective for our program, but most students take it. But anyway, um, with that, in that class, the way that we, I feel like the way that rehab counselors think about disability is much different than the way that the world of ABA thinks about disability. So mm. even just an understanding of the models of disability, like that's not something that I learned or that came up at all in ABA, except mm. that at one place I worked, they brought in speakers from uh, a community nonprofit organization who were educating the staff on the models of disability. Mm. And I feel like there was a rift between the entry-level professionals, the BTs and RBTs, mm. and the clinicians, the BCBAs and, and above, um, because the BTs got it. They were like, yeah, we're all about the social models. So basically just mm. thinking about, am I here to help serve, correct, modify, or am I here to understand, learn, appreciate, you know, support? So mm. just different ways of thinking about um, is disability a problem or is it a part of a person's identity, you know, a part of who they are? So there's so much that from the rehab perspective, um, like sometimes the medical model is, is still being adhered to, but really there's a push more towards understanding the whole person and appreciating who they are. And like I said, that piece about employment, 
That's like the underlying premise. That's what provides the consistent funding and support mm. for these types of programs. But really, it's like, how can we empower someone to live their best life? OK, if you want to go to school, we'll help you go to school. Mm. Do you, you got, like what are your goals? What are your ambitions and how can we support you around that? You know, what's like what's some of the coursework look like in rehab? Like what, what kinds of things are you taking learning about? Obviously, you said learning just about sort of disability in general. Um, but like, what, what other kinds of things do folks learn in these courses, programs? Yeah. Um, when I was in my coursework at the master's level, which is more common, the undergrad rehab programs are less common, but mm. most folks, um, a lot of schools have master's programs in rehabilitation counseling that are under, like, uh, usually under colleges of education and and there might be other counseling tracks available. Yeah. But for rehab counseling in particular, we take courses on mental health counseling. We take courses on all types of experiences that people might have. So like we learn about the physical body. We learn about, um, you know, the skeletal system, mm. you know, all different types of diagnoses, like medical diagnoses that a person might have. Um, but then also we learn a lot about the mental health aspects as well. So we learn about the DSM and the different di diagnoses there. Um, mm. But we also learn about um, the psychosocial aspects. So like how people adjust to disability. So there's different ways that folks mm. um, uh, are, I like experience disability, either born with a, a condition or either uh, some yep. type of acquired condition mm. later in life. And so we learn about adjustment to disability and how that impacts a person's framework and how they move through the world, whether you were born. Like, for example, when I was in South Africa, um, I did a study abroad program mm. and we were at this um, center. I don't know what it was called, but it was almost like a, a residential program for people with different types of disabilities. Mm. And there was 24 hour care. I remember meeting a woman with cerebral palsy and I asked her how long she had been in that chair. And she told me she was born in that chair, mm. you know, so hearing from a person's perspective, like to me, that helped me understand um, some of the concepts I was learning in school, like for her, that chair is just like one of her limbs. It's just mm, an extension of who yeah. she is. It's not something she ever had to adjust to or, or reorient herself around versus now I have a friend who's in a relationship with a person who um, recently became injured and is now a wheelchair user. And so um, a person who's experiencing life like that is going to go through a different type of transition in terms Absolutely. of reframing who they are and how they participate in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I hear, I'm trying try not to circle back to this too much, but mm -hmm. um, I've had a lot of conversations with behavior analysts on the podcast and you know, they're all, they've all been interesting and they've all, it's all been really good conversation, but I really find when I'm talking to folks that have, and it's usually master's degrees, um, uh, master's degrees and something else besides sort of the usual, the, the, the ABA, master's in ABA, master's in special ed, um, maybe psychology, those seem to sort of be the you know, not really psychology too much, but those seem to be the the, the popular ones for a lot of folks to to kind of go through. Or or there's or 
different schools will have different names for them, but they're really just, you know, an ABA program. Um, I think there's a university in, down my way, they call it professional education, but it's still just an ABA program. Mm -hmm. um, but then I'll talk to other folks who, who are social workers. They've got MSWs or, or they've got degrees in counseling psychology or, or something like what you, you've been talking about. And all the things that they learn about and know about are things that are just so missing from our field. Um, and so I just I just love when I hear about people that are in our field that don't have degrees in ABA. Um, we have this very verified course sequence for a reason. So you'll go so you can get your credential if you want. Um, and it covers sort of the basics. But then you take a degree in something else that gives you some of these other skills. And I feel like everything you're talking about would just be so valuable to anyone working with someone with a developmental disability or an intellectual disability. Now, granted, some of those things, I think those are all things folks are, are born with generally. Um, and so you still have that that perspective. But, you know, there's also folks, I think we also work with a lot of folks with like brain injury and and then some of those kinds of things. And so being aware that that kind of different and how that presents and, you know, having the the whole person and the social model and sort of all those things you're saying are things that none of us learn. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like there was a lot that, well, okay. I can only speak for myself because I did yeah. the ABA, uh, a course sequence. Yeah. And so, but even teaching in ABA programs and looking at the content, now I think there's some some things that changing in terms of uh, how the field is starting to you know educate on diversity and cultural responsiveness and cultural mm. humility. I see that shift happening, yeah. um, but there's still only so much that you can do when we're bound by accreditation standards. Yeah. And like for example, in counseling, it varies state to state, but a lot of counseling programs require. Um, different courses on on human development and some ABA programs are required that too. But it's like uh, going deep into different experiences, especially learning about how people experience their diagnosis or their disability or their condition or how, yeah. even, how they describe it. Like, I feel like that would be so powerful, so mm. tremendously powerful. And even though we're learning about like multiculturalism, um, and there's debates on whether it should be a standalone course or if, should, if it should be embedded across the curricula. Yeah. Like, I feel like there's just this piece about understanding how people just live and experience all aspects of their identity, especially how they describe that diagnosis that we're here to treat. I feel like mm. that's a, a, a missing piece that, um, that, you know, how do students really get knowledge about that? Yeah. Now your current job at Cal State. So th this isn't an ABA program. This is a a rehab program. And so what mm -hmm. what what do folks? And unlike your bachelor of psychology and mine too, can folks get a job with this degree? <laughs> yes. One thing that uh, we have in our program is um, there's a field experience that's embedded into students last year. So they get a supervision from a site supervisor. And a lot of the students end up um, getting a job that it, that also counts for that field experience. 
And then so they have a class where they meet, you know, weekly. They talk to the professor and get feedback on how that outside experience is going. And so when they graduate, they have two semesters of field work that they've completed, almost like what an internship would be at the graduate level. But students graduating with that gives them that hands-on experience that they have in addition to the degree. So they can mm. say, okay, yes, I've I've got the, you know, the knowledge, but I've also had some experience acquiring skills. And so for me, when I graduated with the bachelor's in psychology, a lot of jobs were saying, okay, one to two years of experience is required. Right. I was like, well, I had just been in school this whole time. So yeah, yeah that's a piece. That's a piece that we have. But at Cal State LA, um, they have a really good track record with uh, students being able to get employment. So not just our program, but university-wide. Mm. Um, we're ranked number one for, for upward mobility. Oh, amazing. So, yeah, not just in California, but nationwide, number one for upward mobility. So that's something that I'm, wow. I'm proud of. It's like, yeah. That's <laughs> really go. awesome. That's really awesome. And so, you know, what what kind of... Do these jobs pay all right, or or like, or is is this is this person going to make more than an RBT might make with their forty hour course, or, or like they've got a full degree, you know, or, or are they looking like okay, I, you know, I still need to go back to school and learn something else here because this isn't gonna this isn't gonna yeah. pay my bills. It really depends on the setting, but yeah. I know like places like a Department of Rehab and Veterans Administration yeah. and different government agencies that recruit heavily mm. um, at the bachelor's level. It's it's a decent it's a decent. Oh, salary. Don't call mm-hmm. me on numbers. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. There's but, some decent salary positions with the bachelor's level. Yeah, yeah, gotcha. And then, what would be a reason one would then wanna? get a master's degree in rehab if they've already got the bachelor and they're already working, you know, with folks? Yeah, well, a lot of times it is the increase in pay. So people are looking at the difference between um, what they're able to do and then what they're able to get compensated for. Um, Because a lot of times if you're at the bachelor's level, you might be like a case manager or you might be a program director. If it's like a nonprofit, like a domestic violence center, you might see... um, the directors have bachelor's degrees, but if people want to do therapy or provide, you know, more substantial types of one-on-one support, not just the master's, but some sort of license and credential. So at the school where I work here, um, pretty much all of the master's programs have a a credential or a license component Mm -hmm. attached to that, like whether they're going to go for the LMFT or like all the alphabet soup with all the different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so a master's plus a credential, because again, back to the medical model, that's how the businesses are oftentimes making money is being able to build insurance or build somebody. Um, but most of the time it's insurance. Um, so because of that, in a lot of the helping professions, that's what is driving the the income for the company. So then that's where the jobs are going to be available. And then it's like that, you know, ripple effect. That's what's that's what's going to attract students to uh, seek education in those fields. Yeah, they want to get a job that pays a decent amount. 
To earn continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is garden. I heard when you were on uh, Dr. Nasia's Evolving ABA podcast, which I just love, by the way. She's, well, I love her, but um, who doesn't? Uh, but the podcast is great. Um, and uh, you were talking about how you're going to develop some sort of uh, like an undergrad ABA sequence there. Is that is that the plan? Yeah, that's something that is definitely on the radar here. I think um, most of the groundwork has already been set. And so that's that's on my to-do list. Mm. I have a meeting coming up uh, next Monday. And that's mm. definitely one of the things that's going to be top of mind for yeah. us here is to get that ready, the the undergrad BC ABA course sequence. And so is, is and I know, I know you don't have all the details by any means yet, but is this going to be within a rehab degree or is it going to be a different degree, do you think? It'll be an option. So it'll be our degree is rehab services, but then there'll be additional coursework mm. that's required. So like, um, you know, as with any program, there's a whole lot before anything can come to fruition. Yeah. but. Similar model to how some graduate level ABA programs have, you know, the degree might be in one thing mm. in a related field and yeah. then there's a, a certificate program that's an option that students can pursue. Pursue It'll be something similar like that, an ABA option. I guess what I'm getting at, are these folks going to get some of these courses that maybe they should have on top of, you know, the, the standard ABA sequence that oh, you know yeah. would be really helpful for them that other folks might not be able to get? For sure, because the core of it is still going to be rehab services. Even right now, yeah. we have an intro to ABA course mm. that um, all students in our program take. And so really, it'll be building on that. But yeah, and expanding on that for those that want to go deeper. Because there's a master's in ABA program here at Cal State LA. Mm. And some of the rehab uh, services undergraduates do apply and go okay. on to the master's in ABA program here. Right on, right on. Yeah, because I know my very first introduction to ABA was long before I ever practiced it. It was in a community college program I took on, um, they call it a human services counselor. It was a very, I think it was a very sector specific in Eastern Canada job title. But um, they talked a little bit about ABA, but they talked about it in the context of rehab. Um, and in the context of using it, using it to teach, you know, I think, I think it was around, I, th I think the, the, the particular anecdote was around teaching someone who had a stroke to be able to start moving mm. their limbs again, mm. using ABA. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then I never heard about that again, ever in, in sort of ending my training about it being applied in that way. And I was like, yeah, oh, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, and I had always wondered after that why rehab and behavior analysis weren't always best friends. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, I think right now this this piece with, um, you know, reimbursement for service delivery that's attached to an autism diagnosis is mm. kind of taking over because that's right. where most of the funding is coming from. So just that, you know, 
yeah. the connection there. So giving these rehab folks a bit of maybe a bit of the ABA might help them a bit and then they can maybe apply it in their sort of state facilities and whatnot, possibly too. So that might be cool. Um, one more question kind of about sort of the rehab and, and because when, when I think about rehab, when I think about what it used to be called uh, vocational rehab, and I think about that very old journal of voc rehab um, that often has a lot of articles on employment. Um, I noticed that one of your interests, at least in, in the bio, in the biographies that I found, uh, referenced an interest in employment disparities for Black folks with cognitive disabilities. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why that why that specific interest? Yeah, it's it's tricky the way that the government classifies disabilities. So they yeah. kind of split it into these different categories where vision impairments, you know, people who are blind or visually impaired, that's one category of diagnosis. Mm. Um, if folks have mobility related issues, that's a category. And then like a deaf or hard of hearing, that'll be another category. But then mm. when you get to this piece about mental health and intellectual disability and and developmental disabilities, all of that is lumped under this one umbrella called cognitive disabilities. Mm. And I learned a lot about that when I was in my postdoc. Um, so this cat, so like if you're looking for research, um, a lot of times the government agencies just lump that under the same category, even though the needs, the challenges, you know, the experiences can be very different. And sometimes they also overlap and intersect where folks will have a mental health diagnosis and a co-occurring intellectual or developmental disability, or sometimes both. But just thinking about the um, employment outcomes for folks who fall into those categories, mm -hmm. the numbers are just really, really atrocious. And nobody has really come up with a good model that's addressing holistically across the board and really, for me, it kind of hits uh, closer to home. So I have a brother who is currently incarcerated. He's had a lot of different um, challenges with mental health and, and substance, mm. substance use and abuse. But recently I came to the realization, I was like, I think he has an undiagnosed developmental disability, mm. I think. Um, and I remember... Um, my mom talking about, you know, him struggling in school and maybe he could have qualified for ADHD mm. uh, diagnosis when he was a kid, but they didn't want him on Ritalin, just like mm. a whole a lot of different things. But um, yeah, just thinking about folks uh, like him that might be facing similar circumstances and it's like, OK, but what what was really at the root of it? So even with the populations that we serve in behavior analysis, like those eight, nine and, you know, three and four and five year olds are going to grow up eventually. And if certain things aren't, you know, yep. revealed or if, or if those supports aren't aren't in place, what is the future going to look like? Because behavior yeah. continue, you know, it may continue. And in certain situations, uh, certain behaviors that folks engage in might be considered crimes in some states, you know, or yep. felonies in other states. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's just that's such a big it's such a big category. But really, that interest comes from a very personal place. Mm -hmm. And especially because work, it's not just like about the paycheck, but work is just such a big part of like who we are and, and how we represent ourselves and how we spend 
you know, 80 to 90 percent of our time, it's either yeah. at work, getting ready for work, coming back from work, preparing for work the next yeah. day. It's just such a big part of our life experiences. And then without access to that, it's like, well, what are folks doing, um, you know, for the majority of that their day? And so, like, I think about work not just as uh, a source of income, but, you know, that the aspect of like a vocation as such a big part of an identity. And if we understand that that's not going to be a part of a person's experience, then what, you know, then what, what are, how's that time going to be spent? You know, what are those motivations for waking up and building a routine? Like, how do we build a life, a life Mm -hmm. around um, a different type of context? But here in the United States, it's just like an uphill battle. If a person isn't able to participate in employment, there's so much stigma that's associated with that. It's just really an uphill climb. And then you add all those different intersections related to, um, you know, different diagnoses and then racial ethnic identities and, and all this other stuff. It's just like, I did a presentation one time at, um, at a conference. Um, and I was talking about, I used like the analogy of like having a full deck, you know, a deck of cards describing the different intersections. Um, Mm. some people's deck is just really stacked. Yeah. And how do you help folks navigate, understanding what the consequences could be on the other side? So, is it, it, I mean, there obviously is there's some work being done in this area. I had a conversation just recently. I interviewed um, a behavior analyst from, she's in LA. Her name is Jagmeet Sangha. And she does work and she's been doing kind of work with in in kind of neurodiverse employment. Um, and we were just talking about how, you know, this is, you know, this is totally good, good something BCBAs could really be involved in, you know, in 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 kind of job building and job training and and those sorts of things. Um, but she told me that it it, it was it strangely, from her experience at least, there didn't seem to be even across America, like a lot of focus on jobs for folks with developmental intellectual disabilities. It seems to be that all of all the focus is on either getting folks ready for school. So that's what early intervention seems to be really all about is school readiness um, and then getting them through school. Um, and then once they're done school, you know, and, and start to age out, um, then it's, you know, either, you know, we did a good job and they were able to, you know, find a, find a way to get a job on their own, or they end up in some sort of, you know, state funded or provincial funded kind of program for the rest of their lives. Um, and like, is there, is, is there stuff happening for, you know, for folks around employment? Um, some, there's some, there's different pockets and there's yeah. different nonprofits that are doing a lot of work in the space. Um, but in terms of like large scale, large scale interventions and support, it's more like a little, you know, drip, drip here and there. Mm. I will say that after, uh, during and after the pandemic, um, when a lot of folks were exiting different places mm-hmm. of employment, uh, that made that opened up more opportunities for folks that employers mm. may have not considered before. And so I remember reading that the job opportunities, particularly 
for folks with IDD diagnoses got better during and after the pandemic. It was like, yeah, people were willing to give a chance. Some there's some government incentives too, depending on you know the the state and the area that some places mm. are in. But I remember when I was um, working as an employment training specialist, some companies were able to access uh, tax breaks and different things like that by hiring folks who were connected to certain programs. So that's the thing, too, in in some areas. So are are you currently doing any work in this area, just being that it keeps being listed as an interest? Yeah, not not necessarily at the moment. Um, I'm. Since I just moved here to L.A., I'm reestablishing mm. connections right. with, uh, you know, building my professional networks. Yeah. And there's different. So I would say yes and no. So there's different mm. nonprofits that I'm connected to. Um, one nonprofit is called the Niles Foundation, mm. and they do a lot of work in environmental spaces. And so mm. they have I've mostly been volunteering with them through the, these different community gardening projects. Mm. But they have a push towards um, educating people and skills training in high demand green energy fields. So they have some programs mm. around um, installing solar panels and and uh, electric vehicles and things yep. like that. So I know there's some vocational aspects there. Here in my role now, um, I do a lot of work helping connect students to internship opportunities right. and connecting them with uh different folks in the field that'll hire them either for you know their field experience that they need while they're in school or employment after mm. school so again it's like reestablishing and, yeah. and rebuilding those those networks gotcha no cool yeah that sounds like a, a, a cool foundation um and then again and maybe i'm really just stuck on the literal line of employment disparities for African-Americans with cognitive disabilities. I know, generally speaking, you know, if you're Black in in North America, there's going to be disparities across the board. Um, um, With folks with cognitive disabilities, though, and and maybe it's the same. It's it seems like everybody is is kind of hooped here. Like it seems like I, I saw some sort of stat, like it was something ninety percent of folks with intellectual disabilities won't find work. Um, um, and so that's a pretty high number already. Are, are there things in particular for Black folks that are even more problematic? Is and maybe it's just sort of the the fact that. And I'm kind of probably going to answer my question as I ask it here, um, um, because of all of the stuff that I remember from the conversations I've already had in the podcast, whether it be sort of, you know, just discipline disparities from K to 12, um, uh, you know, uh, disparities around for for uh, for sort of maternal concerns, um, you know, they're 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 already. I think I've kind of answered my question here. I mean, the, folks are just already at a disadvantage all the way up until they get to the, pl- the point of maybe being employable, or at least an age of being employable, um, that it's obviously going to be harder for these folks to get work than maybe their white counterparts, even if it's going to be really hard for them to. 
Yeah. To answer your question, I think the biggest difference, the most glaring difference that exists for Black people with what the government calls cognitive disabilities compared to their white counterparts is this the criminal injustice system and the extreme disparities around incarceration, around, you know, the criminal, the the criminal legal system, period. So like I was mentioning before, if folks are not working and if there's not a a real prospect for them to be able to get employed, how is that time going to be spent? They're engaging in some sorts of behaviors. And so keeping in mind what those behaviors might look like as a result of, of, you know, whatever mm. um, diagnosis they may have or whatever circumstances or their yes. context. So that piece um, just makes things 20 times more difficult, even for of folks course. without diagnoses, you know, the, right. the disparities and um, who gets their license suspended or the disparities yep. in, and who has a felony conviction and those things mm. serve as barriers to employment. Like if you don't have a license, but then you do have a job, how are you going to get to work? Well, you might end up still driving and now you're driving illegally. And if you get put over, it's just like all of these. I get it. I get it. That, yeah. I would say that's the biggest uh, yeah. difference there. Yeah. No, and that makes a lot of sense. Cause I'm trying to thinking. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, just, just, White folks can engage in behaviors and and it's not across the board, but generally speaking, having that disability will probably get them off of, mm-hmm. of, of a crime unless it's something obviously super severe. Um, um, whereas, you know, black folks are just going to automatically be taken in and, and charged and imprisoned possibly um, without sort of questions. Yeah, or worse, or shot, or whatever, and so, um, yeah, no, that that's that's the answer. Yeah. Huh. Um, yeah. So you got another degree though that's also unrelated. So, <laughs> or, or not? It seems <laughs> so it seems kind of related because it's got got the the counselor word in there. What's what what's the doctorate in, and 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 why why that shift? Yeah, so as awesome as it is, I think it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, counselor education and supervision is the terminal degree. So, um, yeah, um, the accreditation for counseling uh, is such that a master's degree and some sort of license or credential is usually sufficient for a person to be able to, you know, do what they need to do. And and so, like I said, somebody mentioned this opportunity to me. Um, I applied. I didn't apply to any other schools. That mm. that program was also funded through my research assistantship. And mm. I knew that um, I knew I was capable of pursuing, you know, doctoral level education. And um, I thought it would be a good opportunity. Mm. And so um, my goal going in was to finish the courses that I needed for a counseling licensure. Right. Um, because uh, I spent more time working in ABA. Um, and, uh, at that time I didn't have the CRC after I finished my master's degree. So I wasn't licensed as a counselor. I wasn't, um, I didn't have the the CRC or the rehab credential. Mm. And so I was primarily working in ABA. 
But then the, the through the doctoral program, I was able to get more experience. But then I was able to really get um, exposure to research. And I started to realize I really liked it. Mm-hmm. So the person I was working under, she did a lot. Dr. Middleton did a lot of research on white racial identity development mm-hmm. um, among mental health counselors. And so this piece about racial identity got me really curious and uh, learning about like, multicultural counseling competency. She was one of the initial folks to get the field of rehabilitation to think differently about having standards related to, okay, what is a, at that time we were calling it cultural competency. Competency still has a role, Mm. um, but now folks are also thinking about cultural humility and cultural responsiveness. So anyway, that got me excited about research, about the opportunities to publish. I did a lot of publishing in my doc program worked on a lot of research teams, went to conferences, presented. I was also um, president of the the student organization. So it was the alpha chapter of Chi Sigma Iota. And so that got me um, interested in in service, you know, service to the profession in particular. So yeah, just kind of opened up my eyes to the world of academia. Um, Yeah. And so even though I did a clinical internship, not a teaching internship, after that, I was interested in in teaching and doing research full time. It took me a minute to get to that point. Um, and I, I wasn't even a BCBA then either. So I mm. finished my doc program and I was like, I didn't have anything. Actually, after my Ph.D. program, I actually started over as a <laughs> BT again, you wow. know, try to work myself back up to get the credentials. So my life was kind of in some loops. Did I answer your question about counselor education? (laughs) Well, I mean, you just, the question was, why, why did you take it? And I think it was, it's definitely the opportunity there. You know, I think you've definitely had a few opportunities that have kind of come across your path, you know, working in a nonprofit, meeting a Senator and then uh, having that Senator kind of, you know, help you out with uh, set you up for the master's piece and then meeting someone there and suggesting someone over there. And that's kind of why you went over to Ohio. Uh, tell me more about Dr. Milton. She sounds like she has just been such a important influence on your life. Yeah, I would say those three years that I worked for her as her graduate research assistant, it was uh, one of those pivotal moments in my life. Like, um, I just really appreciated how, as the dean, she was able to manage. It looked like, you know, effortless, effortlessly, mm. but she was just so dignified um, with something that really stood out to me. She was able to secure, um, I think it was like, more than a million dollars worth of donations from a donor. And that was instrumental. The The building was able to be rebuilt. And mm. she started so many different programs centered around education, centered around, um, you know, supporting folks from diverse backgrounds. Uh, but her work as one of the pioneers of multiculturalism in the field of counseling, that was just... Mm. It was just a jewel. And then recently we were able to reassemble a team where, so the person who was the graduate research assistant after me was Dr. Jessica Henry. And uh, she was one of the folks who helped revise the CRC code of ethics. So the rehabilitation code of ethics Mm. to include more standards on advocacy, more standards on um, multiculturalism 
And this latest iteration, we were able to work together. So myself, uh, Dr. Mona Robinson, who was my dissertation advisor, who was also a longtime colleague of, of Dr. Middleton, uh, Jessica Henry, myself, and so different other folks in the network, we were able to um, publish a paper really laying out the, the revisions to the code and how we could reflect back on this paper that was published 20 years ago by Dr. Middleton, which was her call to action. And we were able to really look on that and reflect back to say that, okay, this is how far we've come, but this is how far we still need to go to move things forward. So that kind of came full circle very recently as well. So I don't know. I, I just learned a lot about how folks see the world, about how I see myself. And um, just it just ignited that passion in me to want to write and contribute and to want to assemble teams, which is something that I do now is assemble teams of folks who traditionally wouldn't necessarily have access to the research process, mm-hmm. um, whether that be nonprofits that are doing good work and they want to be uh, more involved and try to publish some of their outcomes or whether it be working with clinicians who are are interested. And some of the clinicians that are in my network have gone on to uh, get accepted into doctoral programs and, and master's programs outside of ABA. Mm. Um, and some of them are still in ABA. I'm not saying I'm pulling people away from the field, mm. but just that... <laughs> that ability to engage in research and um yeah so it's weird for me to kind of see like oh yeah people that I'm connected to are now doing this thing as a result of of our communication so it's interesting it's starting to happen I'm excited about the future but yeah just being a part of folks continued growth and development and helping people pursue their dreams even though I'm not doing that in a in a counseling stance that um mm. that part of providing guidance and support as a you know an educator an advisor and just as a friend as a family mm. member that's been yeah that's just been I don't know it's still kind of unfolding but I just learned a lot I learned a lot during those three years in and outside of class I would say that's awesome you know, and I think just your comment about I'm not pulling people from the field, um, you know, I think it's okay to pull people from the field <laughs> uh, because I really think, you know, our field of behavior analysis is something that could be in a lot of other fields. Uh, but we've, we, we've really made our field a pretty narrow sort of field. Well, funding has made our, our field a very yes. narrow sort of field. And so it, it's nice when I see sort of folks kind of using that stuff sort of across the board. I, I mentioned I had a, I haven't recently, I had a woman on uh, Valeria Pareo, Portuguese um, behavior analyst, and she's doing this DBH program at Cummings. Um, um, and it's a kind of an integrated care program. Um, and uh, so she's got folks from all different sort of kind of allied health areas um, and uh, just talking about how as a behavior analyst, she was able to sort of uh, most of them, it's a behavioral health degree, but no one of them, had, most of them had never heard of behavior analysis um, and talking about just kind of how, you know, I think a, a lot of these fields are very siloed 
and so how how we could all be working together more home kind of back to your 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 point about looking at a person as the whole versus you know just looking at certain parts of them the second secret word is wellness oh that's about integration i feel like is is so uh instrumental even in my own life i'm thinking about ways that i can pull together all parts of myself and I'm um, very interested in wellness, personally mm. and professionally. I'm, I'm reorganizing and reorienting my life around different wellness practices. Um, but that word integration has been coming up a lot in the mm. advice and support that I give to others. Um, and then also, like I, I hear it coming up in conversations with students and ways that I'm describing, you know, where I am now. But yeah, that piece about just bringing the whole, all parts of ourselves together instead of kind of splitting, you know, like, oh, that's over there or compartmentalizing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, integration is something that's been top of mind for me. So tell me a little bit more about the wellness piece, because I heard you talk on um, on uh, Dr. Nasia's podcast and you folks were talking about sort of burnout versus um, trauma. Um, and I had Tammy Morgan on mm -hmm. earlier, and we talked a lot about how burnout was kind of, uh, you know, well, burnout kind of is trauma, and burnout is 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 kind of a a result of systemic issues um, that that you know it, it's. And you said something on Nasia's uh, podcast. And I, I should have wrote it down, but there's something that sort of stood out to me that. that you know, burnout is not a something to the fact of how burnout is not something that's just you. Like it's not just you by yourself are feeling burnout. You know, burnout is you. You you, you can't be burnt out in a vacuum. You know, mm -hmm. uh, it seems that way. It seems you get in that sort of you know ruminating thoughts and you know imposter syndrome and all those kinds of sorts of you know um, um, conversations in your brain, um, but. But in the end, the reason you're burnt out is because the the system that you're working in isn't supporting you in in one way or another, or accommodating, or and so on and so forth. And and so certainly, when we're looking at in particular black professionals in 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 most fields, they're often you know the only one there, um, and the system wasn't made for them. And so often, you know, it's it's you know. The, these are the conversations that I've had in the podcast. Folks telling me that you know they're being hired to be the DEI person and then deal with all the problems with racism in the workplace, even though they're the ones that are going to be the target of all of it, um, things like that, or um, you know, or uh, uh, you know, there are lots of other sort of different uh, sort of systemic reasons why you know a, a lot of our, our structures don't really work for folks. Um, but then. Cammy was also talking about kind of how, you know, self-care is good, but, you know, if the system's still kind of, kind of messing, messing everything up for you, um, it, it, it may not be enough. So I'm curious, number one, um, and again, I, I steer people towards Dr. Nasia's interview with you to, to kind of get a lot more detail on that and, and, uh, or, or, and certainly the episode I did with Cammy around the burnout trauma piece, if you want to learn more about that um uh, to kind of get some more details on what that conversation looked like but for you 
you, you said you, you, there, there's been a lot more focus on wellness. So I'd like to know one kind of what that's been looking like, but also I'd like to know why you've been doing this focus on wellness. And I, I, I want to hear what you're doing, but why as well? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For me, um, it's really rooted in a couple of different things. So first, there was a, an experience I had last year um with psychedelic integration and i talked about this at the uh baba conference and Mm -hmm. i was like did i just tell everybody to go to drugs (laughs) but um but yeah but seriously my thoughts around the different ways that folks are seeking to be free Mm -hmm. um i used to be really judgmental around you know everything alcohol um you know cannabis use and and all kinds of different things but um I went to a clinic. It was a place like there was medical professionals and insurance even reimbursed me for probably about half of what I paid for. Mm. Um, And I had three uh, sessions uh, where there was ketamine administration and then Mm. there was psychedelic integration with a licensed mental health professional. And then everything was under the administration of a medical doctor who consulted with me before and after. took my blood pressure. It was all recorded. Anyway, very, very cool experience. but it was also very meaningful and impactful in terms of opening up, you know, certain things and, and really freeing me from certain things. And I'm still experiencing the benefits to this day. Um, I haven't had suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation since then. And it was funny because I mentioned that on Dr. Nasia's podcast that the first time I ever had any thoughts of ending my life was it was it was a hundred percent tied to an adverse workplace experience a hundred percent the the ship sank and after that um you know I was like well you know I just went to a deep dark place yeah um and that kind of opened that portal and since then I had you know in the years after that I had uh, experienced continued challenges as you know, just the everyday stresses of life and maybe certain things that I felt like were more than average, but I felt like um, I was really trying to get at the root of, okay, what what is my capacity? Is it that I just really have limited capacity to deal with everyday life? And that's a question that I'm still asking myself. And did that was that the source of the challenges that I faced at work? Mm. Or was it these experiences that I went through in the workplace were just above and beyond the typical of the norm. And really the conclusions I'm coming to as it relates to workplace stuff is that it was a little bit of both and Mm. not necessarily either or, because I was seeing that some of the choices I made, um, I don't, you know, it's not necessarily things that I'm proud of, like leaving a job with short notice or or the impact that that would have on the families that I was there to serve and stuff like that. Um, So those are not things that I'm proud of. But then when I think about like the regrets, I wouldn't say that I necessarily have regrets for experiences because if I had to make a choice, I had to choose me. You know, if I was in a situation where I was just like, oh gosh, I couldn't take that anymore. Even in my personal life, I've had to make some, some choices where folks are like, oh, you just can tough it out or, you know, just get over it. And I'm like, well, I think I'm maybe not bringing, you know, all that to the table to be able to just go with the flow. Um, And so as I'm continuing to figure that process out, 
It's giving me an understanding of, okay, what are the parts of me that I need to shed and get rid of? And then what are the parts that are assets that, you know, allow me to make unique contributions? And then what are the things that I need to do every day to help maintain the freedom that I've accessed through psychedelic integration? And so now um, I'm really deep into exploring the benefits of traditional yoga. Mm. I practice at um, a Shivananda Vedanta Yoga Center here in L.A. And um, just learning about different ways, like things that I've already been refining in terms of, you know, my diet and incorporating movement. We actually did a, an IRB approved study with a friend of mine who's an artist and she calls this self-science frequency. And um, her artist name is Changing Frequencies. So I've learned a lot from her through our friendship. I've known her more than 15 years in different ways that she monitors. Because as a child, she was institutionalized and mm. she lives with bipolar disorder and manages it without a medication, um, mm. without any prescribed medication. And so I've learned about different strategies and tools that she uses. And so anyway, just like all these different pieces across the way, I feel like I I have been literally taking data, charting my own behavior, mm. um, you know, engaging in different circles. I've also done research um, in Marco Polo, like Marco Polo groups that we create, like accountability and support groups mm. using this asynchronous app called Marco Polo. So um, like I said, I'm, I feel like I'm a person who's doing the work. I'm very much engaged in doing the work to be uh, a better version of myself. Um, cause I feel like I have something there, like that's right below the surface. And it's just like, okay, if I could just, yeah. just get that out, you know what I mean? That like, I, I wake up every day with that feeling, like if I could just do this. Um, so having a, a consistent wellness practice just gets me excited about life, but mm. I feel like it keeps me at a level so that I'm able to, um, you know, deal with things that come, but that I'm able to actually like relax and pay attention and notice what's happening in my body, yeah. notice what's happening in my mind and to really get in front of situations and not just be so reactive, but to really decide and make a conscious choice in how I'm going to respond. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really like a complicated question mm. to answer. Yeah. But for me, I feel like it's just so necessary. Like, yeah. It's just so necessary that I stay hydrated, that I pay attention to my diet, that I'm moving my body, that I'm monitoring my thoughts. And I, I do sometimes wonder, like, is everybody doing this much work? It's just a Tuesday. You know what I mean? Like, I wake up every day and join an accountability group that I've been doing since November. Okay. Um, and we meet every day on Zoom for 20 minutes. We set our daily goals and check-ins. And so all of these different things I'm, like, doing simultaneously and literally, it's it's Tuesday, you know. Yeah, yeah, I love that idea of the accountability group. Is that something just set up with friends, or? Well, we have set up one with friends with changing frequencies, um, to help her refine the model of self science frequency. But this group that I'm in now, another nonprofit, it's an organization called Black Everywhere, and mm. I heard about this one. We're doing research on it now. We got IRB approval. Um, and okay. we just submitted our final revisions. We had a meeting today. That's why I was late meeting with you. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. But that group is um, the founders, Jamaica Ali. She set up this uh, accountability group called Be Well. And so 
the B comes from the acronym for her, her nonprofit, Black Everywhere. Mm. And so we meet for six weeks. We take turns hosting. It's uh, really a, a, an easy, sustainable model because she like she created an ebook with all the instructions. We meet on Zoom and it's just 20 minutes a day, but it's really, really impactful. And I'm excited to start the interviews. Um, and then we have a, a statistician who's also been a member of the group and who's a current participant now. And he's a, a data analyst mm. um, by trade. And so he's Ooh. going to help with analyzing the the quantitative data, and then I'll run the qualitative analysis and we'll see what we can find in terms of the benefits of that. And so you're looking at the, the benefits of this accountability circle? Yes. Uh, I'm really interested, as you can see, I'm very much interested in self-management, like for me, but mm -hmm. also as a researcher. So that's stuff that I'm working on currently that'll be um, coming down the pike eventually. I'd like to hear a little more about what you're doing with uh, changing frequencies. I, I I checked out some of her music. It's pretty good. Yeah, I, I liked it. She's got a little SoundCloud and she's got a little website playing some tunes. Um, you, you were involved in uh, in in putting on a concert. This music is medicine thing. What, what was that about? Yeah, so at my school, the our dean Mitch Freiling, he's a BCBA. If folks yeah. know. Uh, Mitch, yeah, he goes to ABAI and different stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we have funding from uh, we had funding from college to they called it special projects funds, and mm. so we um secured a small grant, I think around like six or seven thousand dollars. And I pitched the idea of I pitched the idea that changing frequencies and her husband and business partner. Uh, came up and we we co-created this concert called Music is Medicine Creative Wellness Concert. And so it was live in two locations. There were yeah. artists performing in LA and artists in Oklahoma City. But mm. the unique aspect of it is we invited wellness vendors who shared information about their products and services. And several of the artists had uh, pre-recorded interviews. So mm. here I had a journalism student named Xavier, who uh, interviewed some of the artists. And we got their, their backstory, essentially, about why they nice. do what they do. And um, it was really diverse. On this end, we had a professor who does aerial performances, like improv aerial performances. Wow. Yeah, she's in TV film. Her name is Jane McKee McKeever. And so she performed. We awesome. also had... Um, an artist named uh, Kiva Siani, who is a burlesque dancer. And she oh. talked about the ways that, but she did, you know, um, the performance that she did for us, uh, it was more like feathers and, you know, it was, it was still a little sensual in nature, but not, sure, sure. it was for a daytime audience. <laughs> but her artist interview talked about the ways that she's been, um, adjusting and readjusting to her body as a result of different traumas she's experienced right. in the past and then adjusting, you know, um, as a woman who's, you know, uh, just going through different life stages. And now she does women's circles and helps women, other women engage with their bodies. And she's also um, a massage therapist. So this piece about just embodiment as a form of care 
um, and a form of empowerment was a huge part of her story. Mm. Um, yeah, we had rappers who, you know, talk through their lyrics about different ways that they manage their mental health. Um, yeah, really diverse. Oh, there was a guitar ensemble. So another professor here, Satik Adriasen, who took a group of students to the UN on a, a peace missions tour, and they were able to play play their wow. music to support and uplift in Armenia. So the money that they used from that performance was able to help with their trips. So it was cool to be able to support these different artists in different ways. And there was an indigenous performer from Oklahoma. Hmm. Um, yeah. Named Olivia Comanche. Just really cool. So changing frequencies has this vision of bringing people together about folks being honest about the ways that they move through life. Um, mm. But her, her artist's name really comes from the fact that she was able to use um, music, breath work, you know, and everything that she's learning to literally change the frequency to shift out yeah, of a music episode without um, medication. So, yeah, it's been really cool, cool learning from her. Yeah, she sounds really awesome. And I caught a little bit of the interview with you and uh, Kiva. And was it your aunt, Jackie? Yeah, she has a podcast. My aunt has a podcast called Love Notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was cool. And then I saw that she interviewed, I think she interviewed you and her, but that she interviewed you just alone as well uh, on there. So that was kind of cool to see. <laughs> I just love that this is my daughter. This is my niece. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was the podcast on um where we were talking about adverse childhood experiences. Yeah, yeah. And that ended up leading to another project. I like group work. And yeah. so in my family, since March, we've been meeting every Tuesday night doing what we call breaking generational curses. So I'm one of the older cousins, but my grandmother, uh, Gloria Williams, she passed away in um, in November I'm of sorry. 2019. And so there's a huge family tree. So she had gotcha. 10 children wow. and a, a foster child. And wow. then I have like, at last count, like 33 first cousins. And then there's like 33 or 35 second cousins. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so we started noticing patterns within some myself and some of my first cousins mm. related to relationships that we have with our moms. And so there's eight girls and two boys. We're really nine girls. Um, Cause the one foster child. Foster child yeah. So just, we started noticing this dynamic between um, daughters and moms. Mm. And, and uh, we just started getting together and talking about it as a result of that ACES podcast, because mm. my aunt did the ACES with all of her siblings. And that's yeah. when I found my mom was an eight. And so I had my cousins, I invited everybody. Hey, if you want to come to this group, let's just come talk about what's going on. And so I had all my cousins take the ACEs and then we started documenting um, and taking notes and just kind of working through our childhood experiences. And then we started noticing themes across our experiences mm -hmm. and themes that we noticed between generations and patterns that we identified. And so we have a list of like 30 something patterns that um, we feel like are negative behaviors that we don't want to continue to the next generation. And so a lot of process work came out of, you know, some of those initial meetings and we meet on WhatsApp and we have a group chat. But now where we are is 
the next generation has taken over the family reunions that happen every year. So Mm. now we have like a, you know, more task oriented, but it's still kind of a support group where we come together and talk. And we've talked about maybe um, doing something with that model. At first we were thinking about maybe, you know, being on the the podcast that my aunt did, but then folks were like, nah, but there's a psychologist that I, I know of, Dr. Danielle Bill. She's a, really famous BCBA in California. I had and her so on the she, podcast, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Bill, she's amazing. Her yeah. ACE score is 10 out of 10. Wow, she, yeah. She's an expert in Black women in trauma. She and is. so she's curious about the model that we're developing. At some point, we'll probably connect because we're friends and, and colleagues and we do research and work together. But at some point, we'll connect about the thing that my family's doing. Mm-hmm. Whenever everybody's ready, and see what we can do with that model. Yeah, because because I know I think it was Jackie's daughter that was in there. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what was the name? Charity Clarity. Yeah, Charity. Yeah. And she and she said that she she mom said she discovered she learned that the daughter had a score of eight. Um, and, and didn't know that before. And similarly, you didn't know what your mom's score was before this whole happened. Is that what you said? Yeah. yeah. And so has there, you know, I, mean, you, you, I don't know much about the research on ACEs. I know there's lots, but um, um, has there been research to sort of make more of these sort of, I, I know there's, I know there's stuff about sort of if you, your, 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 your parent, I think there's some, there might be some stuff around if your parent has a high score and how it relates to your score. And there's some things maybe you can do there. Some I know, I know there's like some more deeper sort of assessments than just the basic 10 questions and whatnot. Um, I did it, but I did it before this interview, just out of curiosity. I'm, I've got a two. Um, but um, um, is there like some research around sort of multi-generational and 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 members of wide members of a family and how aces could be interconnected that way yeah um there's a lot a lot of research some of the things that uh i've been accessing recently okay there's dr nadine burke harris yes who's um done a lot of work especially looking at okay uh among black communities so that's one that i would recommend i think her book was called the deepest well Yes. So I would recommend folks to to check out her work. And then um, Oprah wrote, co-authored a book with someone, uh, I forget the researcher's name, but the book was called What Happened to You. And mm. so they talked about if we as a society were to reframe the way that we think about trauma and that we understand the individual that's in front of us and like understanding that everybody's got something like it's yeah. very rare that you'll meet somebody with an ACE score for zero or one. And so um, to answer your question, I'm not familiar with research on the generational patterns mm. that exist within ACEs, but I do know a lot of it shows that um, that there are things that can be done to prevent uh, mm. a higher ACE score. So especially for people that have children now, um, thinking about ways that they can serve as a protective factor. So all mm. the ACE is, is just like identification of risk factors. Right. But anybody who's playing a role in the life of an individual who's under the age of 18, 
could potentially serve as a protective factor to mitigate those negative effects that are correlated with the higher ACEs score. So it's not like a crystal ball. You're like, oh, you're an A, you're doomed to blah, blah, blah. (laughs) But a lot of the research is correlational showing that a score of four or more does put a person at higher risk of of negative outcomes, uh, whether that be like social in nature, whether they be related to mental or physical health. But there are specific studies that show like um, re- the relationship between the ACEs and high blood pressure or the ACEs right. and diabetes or the ACEs yes. and then, you know, likelihood of incarceration. So there's a lot, there's a lot, a lot of research on the ACEs. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I heard you talk a bit on with uh, Dr. Nasia about, um, you know, taking that trauma-assumed approach versus the trauma-informed approach. And, and I liked I like the the reason for doing that in that we didn't because the whole idea of forcing folks to you know disclose whether it be trauma or or diagnosis you know and I think because we talk about this as well sort of why why do I need to tell you I have autism or ADHD in order to get those accommodations just yeah. believing that I need them should be enough um, and give them to me because I want them. Um, and if they're available to someone with ADHD, why wouldn't they be available for someone who didn't tell you they had ADHD and so on and so forth? I've I've heard some pushback in, in it around sort of this trauma assumed idea that we shouldn't be assuming everyone has trauma. And 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 I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that because there there are some folks. I think there is a camp, and I'm not saying it's necessarily just in our field, but in general, there's there's a camp of folks that think that all these new terms that we're applying, um, uh, compassionate care, um, um, they shouldn't be new terms. I mean, that's problem right. number one. <laughs> but uh, compassionate care, trauma-informed, um, neurodiversity affirming, you know, all these sorts of things that that are kind of become catchphrases for a lot of folks working with uh, neurodivergent folks. Um, trauma assumed is another one. Um, and yet, and then, but then I've heard sort of pushback that we can't assume that everyone's got trauma. And by assuming that could be a bad thing, but I'm not really sure how that could be a bad thing. Have you From heard my any of that? Perspective, yeah. it, it's hard to see how that could be a bad thing because yeah. if you're thinking about the way, like modifying our own behavior, okay, behavior analysts, we never blame the individual. We look at what we could do. Like if it's just like a plant, if you have a plant that's not thriving, you don't know, say, yeah. oh, that's a horrible plant. We look at the environmental conditions that can be changed to help that plant grow and survive and thrive. And so it's the same thing, but it's like, why do we forget that when, uh, when we work with human beings, we don't, I would say we're getting better in terms of um, how we approach uh, that mindset when interacting with our clients. Like I see very few um, folks in our field who are saying that the, client like like nobody is saying that the client deserves you know x y and z like nobody's blaming the individual for Mm. their behaviors you know if anything we're teaching folks about the consequences and then in especially people who operate from a more uh act framework helping people understand that okay make sure that you're uh, a part of the contingencies that are going to lead to the outcomes that that you're seeking, you know, getting mm. closer to that reinforcement or, or closer to your values. Mm. Um, and so 
But I feel like, especially when we think about employees, so that was the context of a, a presentation I did with Gayla Martin. And at that time, we were working under a framework of humans helping humans. Mm-hmm. And so because both uh, Gayla and I had, we were BCBAs, but we both had backgrounds in counseling, mm-hmm. felt like there was some similarities in how we treated not only the clients, but the staff as well. And so Gayla has her own company um, now and the way that she supports her employees, it's just with a, a a deep level of thought and consideration, like the same level of care and attention that folks put towards their um, their clients. I feel like the BCBAs who also put that level of care, attention towards their um, their employees, they're going to have a uh, happier, healthier, healthier, safer mm. workplaces, you know. And so that's what I was saying in that context. But just in general, I feel like as a society, if if we treat folks um, with that level of care, like if we treat everybody as if they have an ACEs score of 10, not knowing, mm-hmm. of course, then that means that we're going to be um, more thoughtful in our words. We're going to be yeah. more intentional about our approach. We're going to look for signs like, is this person okay with me standing right here? Like, mm-hmm. am I doing, mm-hmm. like, do I need to do something differently to allow that person to be a bit more comfortable um, and just making sure that I'm not going to do anything that's triggering. Like even in class, some of the things that I would think wouldn't be triggering, like talking about a family's adjustment to um, the experience of of, uh, their child's experience of a disability. Mm. Um, I've had students message me like, hey, you know, I just got to step away for a second. I'll be Mm. back. You know, so even things that I wouldn't necessarily think would need a trigger warning or would need um, just a couple of moments of space. It's just like, you just can never know. You can never Mm. know. So you got to proceed with caution with everything, you know, just with everything. No, I love that. And put a trigger warning on this because I wasn't planning to talk about uh, that stuff that I mentioned earlier, but since it came up, I'm sure you'll, you know allow listeners to know when that that content might come up yeah but yeah just like with everything we don't we just never know what what might do it for someone yeah Um, yeah yeah no i definitely i definitely will do that you you used uh the example of uh of a plant that's growing And, and earlier you uh talked about how you spent a lot of time in community gardens and then I noticed that you actually have done something with around applying gardening in, in one of these grants you're working on. Can you tell me yeah. a little bit about this horticultural therapy thing? This yeah, hospital? that one I was invited to participate. There was a um, when I worked in Jackson, Mississippi in a rehab program there as a data analyst for a person who had a USDA grant. So mm. That was really fun. I I did everything virtually. Um, I never met the the kiddos, but there were nine and ten year olds who were participating in a gardening program during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, they were in South Carolina, and I got to see their pictures and read through their interviews and um, really try to capture the experiences of how they grew throughout mm. that process. And it was so beautiful. It was really beautiful. Um, Yeah, it was a project that it didn't take a lot of time on my end, but I was really excited to engage with the work. And through that process, I learned about uh, mixed methods and 
um, I was able to develop a model to like show how we, you know, I really got excited about the research side, but yeah, yeah. The, the gardening, the gardening um, aspects, it, it just drew, there were so many parallels that the students were able to see themselves represented in the plants, like in terms of the level of care, the tenderness yeah. approach, and they were able to see themselves as, as representative presented in the work that they were doing and the things that they were learning. So yeah, it was an impactful experience. Yeah, right on. I mean, just gardening in and of itself is so therapeutic. So I, I can but I so I can imagine a lot of the different parallels you could take out of that, metaphors you could probably draw and and uh, and, and and so on. Really cool. Yeah. I have a student right now who's a uh, who uses the uh, metaphor of a tree to describe themselves and and how they are experiencing and understanding the world. And now I'm seeing that metaphor of a tree come up, you know, in a lot of different places. Like there's this positive thinking manual that the Shivananda Yoga Center puts out. Mm. And they uh, also use a metaphor of a tree in terms of helping people uh, think about, you know, refining their own wellness, their personal wellness model. So like what boundaries are you going to set? And this like the fence that you put around your tree, you know, and like mm -hmm. what weeds you need to pull, what things you need to get, get rid of and stuff like that. So there's so much that can be done with the tree. I was doing a disability justice presentation um, last semester with that same student and with a person from the World Institute on Disability, Moya Spunthoff. And we helped the we presented this idea of imagining um, a future where people could experience conditions where we all thrive, where we all, you know, just live and grow and, you know, and are, are, are beautiful and healthy. And, and we use the metaphor of a tree also to help people imagine a future, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the tree just keeps coming up, especially this past year, it just keeps coming up, coming up. Yeah, I had uh, uh, Tiffany Hammond on the podcast a while back, and she's a uh, uh, black autistic mom, big social media preference, fidgets and fries. Is this mm -hmm. And I had her on because she was talking about a tree, um, and she was talking about this whole um kind of ABA reform conversation that's been happening for quite a while, um, whether in the context of sort of the neurodiversity affirming practice or, or just changing everything we do or, you know, some of the history and whatnot. And she, 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 cause she found herself getting kind of sucked into sort of being like, you're taking sides, you know, um, you, you know, you need to be on our side or this side or that side. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, she's done, she's, she, her and, um, and uh, Tiffany, the other Tiffany, Tiffany Joseph, uh, the nigh functioning autism had her on as well. And they both talk about, um, well, just two things here, I guess they both, they talk about how, you know, a lot of that conversation is, does not take into account black folks um and, mm. and the black experience and the black autistic experience which is so much different than kind of 
kind of uh, well then then, then the non-black autistic experience um and there's you know a lot of different nuanced pieces in there but uh, tiffany hammond also talked about how uses the tree and she talks about how aba is just a leaf on the tree and uh and that you know we yeah you know there's a whole lot of other leaves you know i mean i think we could look at sort of all the all, all the sectors of the world and it's the roots that we got to be thinking about um and the roots mm. of that tree are you know and, and and which you know i think goes back to the sort of the roots of a lot of these the roots of sort of a lot of issues goes back to you know the racism and sexism and basically all, all the all the isms of the world you know all of the sort of white supremacist constructs that our kind of world is is based on and so this is another tree metaphor The third secret word is trauma. When you were talking about Dr. Middleton at in the awards, um, and you're just talking about how awesome she is in 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 every way, you know, and, and you know, and kind of how you know you're a bit starstruck when you kind of first kind of started working with her. You said that she, you said, and she's vegan. You said, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was curious. Are you vegan yourself? Was that something? Uh, I, I was vegetarian for five years. Primarily, uh, I don't uh, eat meat. I do mess with a little dairy, like cheese and stuff. So I don't I don't really identify as anything. But right. uh, I would say like five out of or six out of seven days on any given week. I'm definitely not eating meat. Yeah. Um, but like I had some Little Caesars pizza, I think on Saturday night or something. So like every once in a while, I will. But for the most part, um, I don't. But I just really appreciate the the vegan lifestyle in terms of the care uh, that it provides for our earth. You know, it's yeah. just a, from the environmental standpoint, it just makes more sense. Um, when I first started, at, you know, being vegetarian, it was it was a, a big help financially. It was just a cheaper, it is. more cost way for me to sustain myself. But right now I'm learning more about um, the Ayurveda lifestyle, which is mm. the sister science to traditional yoga. Yes. And so it's like uh, using herbs and, and food and there's breath work and water. There's so many different uh, practices even I went to this workshop, I was at a retreat this weekend and we were learning about like how to massage yourself with uh, sesame oil. Mm. And um, mm. when they talk about self-care, I mean, it's like head to toe, spiritually, you know, um, all kind of different ways that that one can take care of themselves using simple, basic, you know, things from the kitchen. And uh, yeah, it just got me thinking about like food as medicine and yeah. and just so many different things that are like so, so simple that folks around the world have been doing for literally thousands of years and things that we can embrace now. Um, yeah, it's a lot of stuff like I, I, I stopped. I stopped uh, being vegetarian because I feel like th the attitude sometimes that comes with certain lifestyles, people are like in a restaurant well does this have such and such in it like I just didn't want to be associated with like th like that kind of thing yeah. and I remember one time I was in Haiti and I was at a family's home and somebody mentioned that I didn't eat meat and it just caused a huge disruption at dinner they were like yeah. well, we don't know what to serve you like so culturally um 
I understand that in certain spaces, it could be very offensive to express in that way. So I I don't really, yeah, I don't really identify as anything, but most of the time I don't eat meat. It's yeah, a simple yeah. answer. <laughs> yeah, no, it was more just that you, that you were sort of jubilantly pointing that out about Dr. Milton. <laughs> Uh, that, that, that sort of set up for, I, I've, I've been vegan for 14 years now and and so you know wow. I, just, I, I definitely get it and my wife all her life and we're just sort of you know we've been eating vegan forever and, and we went vegan for we're vegan primarily for um the animal animal rights reason versus the, the environmental reason um, i mean obviously it's great for the environment too but Ours came more from just a lot of stuff we learned about the animal industry and whatnot. Um, and but now, just now, we're starting to think about things kind of the way you are. We're actually kind of looking at, you know, we just didn't eat meat, but we weren't really thinking about sort of the value of the foods themselves and 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 you know, and, and the herbal values and so some of those things. And you know, she's been looking a lot a, a lot more detail at that but yeah it's 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 amazing we actually stopped eating oil for the most part so maybe using it for massages might be the way to go <laughs> yeah <laughs> Still got a couple it's so around. much yeah yeah i there's... feel like just the ancient wisdom and knowledge um the yeah. more that we can learn start to embrace and reconnect it, it just reminds me of that principle of sankofa it's like a um an ankara symbol where it's an image yeah. of a bird. It's the body's moving forward, but the head is turned back. And then there's a little egg in the bird's mouth to symbolize like the future or, you know, uh birth, like next generation. But it's like um fetching your history uh in order to like returning to your history in order to move forward, like embracing mm. the past, use that to carry forward, you know. Yeah. Well, and of it's course that. Mm -hmm. there's i mean there's also i mean that works that works well with i think a lot of what i've and, and i'm just scratching the surface here but what i've learned about black culture and, and kind of being in touch with ancestors and um and elders and sort of all those kinds of pieces I imagine there's some probably some intermix in there too yeah yeah indigenous is indigenous you know yeah. all over the world ancient is ancient yeah, absolutely. Really cool. Um, I was going to ask you. Yeah, just doing a lot of cool things. What 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 is some of the stuff you're doing with um with Dr. Beal and Candy? Because they talked about doing a bit of work with you. I'm curious what what you guys are all working on. Yeah, we have two manuscripts that need to be written up like mm. now <laughs> the team just met but we move as we have capacity because yeah. um these are projects that started outside of me working you know as a tenure track professor i think right we came through one of uh my part-time schools where i was affiliated well where i still am mm. affiliated but anyway so we did one study together um called a heuristic inquiry and that's mm. a different way of qualitative research where okay. the the researchers like we're all in it together and the mm -hmm. participants are called co-researchers okay. so there was one study that we did um looking at uh adverse workplace experiences so we we created a an asynchronous group 
where we met for six weeks on the Marco Polo app. And we just shared our experiences. You know, we we all had different levels. There was like folks who worked as BTs all the way mm. through doctoral level um, practitioners, all in ABA. And we just kind of talked about what we went through, but it ended up being a really meaningful and powerful experience. And we presented it at BABA um, and then as a workshop. And then now we need to write up that manuscript. And so Kenny and Danielle were both part of that group. And... Mm also part of the research team. Um, and in that group, five out of the six participants are also members of the research team. So like really heuristic in nature. Mm-hmm. Then um, another study, we disseminated a survey that uh, had, you know, survey, like traditional survey questions, but also some open-ended aspects where we asked people why they left certain ABA positions and why mm-hmm. they stayed. So we allowed people to report on up to 15 different workplace experiences in ABA. Wow. So we have all the data from that. It's been analyzed a couple of different ways, but now we need to write that up. And we we just met to talk about our plans to disseminate those findings. Um, again, we presented that at Baba this past year in Detroit. This is 2023. So this summer in Detroit, we presented those findings. And then in 2022 is when we shared the results from the heuristic inquiry. So both of those studies need to be put in um, a document so we can submit for a publication. Um, Yeah, so those are the two projects. But anything Danielle and Kimmy asked me to do, I'm down. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, they're legends. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, maybe when those things get published, we get the three of back and talk about them some more. That'd be awesome. Hey, that'd be cool. Right on. So normally these sort of these things sort of end with kind of what are you working on these days? But I think this whole episode's been about what you've been working on these days. But um, what's uh, what's the anything anything exciting kind of kind of happening over the next uh, year or so? um really just digging into my role here at cal state la um also everything wellness like everything wellness personally and professionally wrapping up some projects embarking on some new ventures um yeah but really the eight wellness domains puts it all together for me so i i don't feel like i have to really splinter myself because I'm noticing that it's all connected, whether it be social, environmental, intellectual, economic, emotional, like all of those different domains. Mm. Uh, Like I was mentioning before, before we started recording, talking about integration. Mm. And so pulling all aspects of myself together, I feel like wellness is a, a huge umbrella that pulls everything that I'm interested in together Mm. it's out of a need for self first but then also identifying and connecting with others who are also on similar paths and then seeing what stuff we want to do together um I don't think I really mentioned this piece about disability justice that's also an area that's new to me Mm. um I've been exploring it really learning from my students who are advocates in their own rights um, with both visible and invisible disabilities. And and they sit at different intersections, especially related to gender identity and expression. Mm. Uh, But learning a lot from, there's a student organization that was just founded here 
called the Neurodivergent Collective, and they asked me to be their advisor. And so working with them over this past year has put me in connection with so many different folks and and really trying to expand that network because the students wanted to start a DSU or a Disabled Students Union and wanted to organize around those efforts. And um, yeah, just connecting them with scholars. Like they got to meet scholars and activists. They got to meet uh, the mayor of a town here in California who's the first autistic mayor on this side of the United States. And he wow. came to one of the events. Yeah, and so folks are excited about what they're doing. I'm excited about them. Um, yeah, so really just, I learned from anyone and everyone, like, I'm just taking notes at this point. And so that's yeah, yeah. that's what gets me most excited, the stuff that I'm learning. And the neurodiversity part, part you said you were we were talking sort of before we started that you think you think you might be part of the team too? Oh, I'm in it. I'm in <laughs> it. I'm there. And I was actually like, uh, I learned that from one of my students. They were yeah. like, see what you're fidget. And I hear you talking about different stuff. Do you think you might... And I'm like, well, you know, it was an exploration for me. But yeah, I know I'm under the umbrella. So just learning about the different um, ways that our brain works and who who is considered a neurodivergent, you know, because of trauma, because of mental health diagnoses, because of these certain things. If I look at the broad definition of of neurodivergence, I, I got like three or four of the things on the list. So yep. things like cultural identity um mm. impacts, you know. So yeah, I'm I'm neurodiverse, even though yeah. I didn't necessarily identify uh if you would have asked me a year ago, I'd have been like, no, that's the population I serve. But mm-hmm. um yeah, I'm I'm definitely in there in in yeah, depending on how you define neurodivergent, I, yeah. I would say it's something that definitely describes how my brain works. Yeah, I like the depending part because I'm I've been back and forth as to whether I'm, you know, ready to identify. I mean, I know I have ADHD, and so everyone else would say I am because <laughs> <laughs> apparently that's one of the, you know, that's one of the 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 free passes in the neurodiversity clan is if you have ADHD or autism, you don't even have to identify with it. You're just in. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's definitely an interesting journey. Really cool. I really, what I really love about all the work you're doing is how, and I think if I were, if I had the, you know, the urge to do what you're doing, which I'm kind of glad I don't, but um, <laughs> but if I did, you know, I, I think I would come at it from the same way in, in terms of, you know, I, I was, I was like doing things that, you know, I think would be helpful to helpful for me kind of being immersed in that, you know, and you talk about a lot of the wellness practices, the neurodiversity work, all that sort of thing are, are all things that are related to your own life. And how you can sort of improve and grow in your own life. And so you're able to actively participate in kind of all of these sorts of um, projects in, in some kind of way. And I think, you know, that can bring it a whole, a whole lot more meaning, both for you and the participants and those you're trying to disseminate it to and so on and so forth. So I, I love that that's kind of kind of how you, you you sort of shape your 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 the projects you're going to be working on. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's and I'm I'm really uh, noticing that I've been drawn to people who also operate in those same spaces, like folks that I am working most closely with. 
are people who are creating. Mm. Because, okay, said so James Baldwin quote, the space in which I'll fit will not exist until I create it. Like that just sums it up right there. Love that. So I'm connecting with people who are also creating that out of a need to serve self first. And if enough of us do that, then maybe we'll reach capacity, you know, where a lot more folks are being helped because we're the ones that hold the solutions because yeah. we know what we need, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Um, it's it's been an honor to be able to chat with you. I hope we can do it again sometime. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it and I'll see you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Natalie.